0: Welcome to ActonLine, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Zaja, producer. In this episode, Nathan Mech, Program Outreach Project Manager here at the Acton Institute, sits down with Ali Salman, co-founder of Islam and Liberty Network, to discuss his new book, Islam and Economics. Islam offers three moral principles of economic organization, ownership, wealth creation, and wealth circulation. Based on these principles, Islam and economics derives a framework of operational, institutional tenets for the economic organization of a society. It addresses all important business, policy, and equity issues that any economic system should resolve and broadens the discussion on the modern discipline of Islamic economics. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Actonline on our website at actinorg slash actonline. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.
1: Hello, my name is Nathan Meck, and I'm the Program Outreach Project Manager at the Acton Institute. Today, we are joined by Ali Salman, CEO of the Islam and Liberty Network and founder of the Policy Research Institute of Market Economy, Pakistan's leading free market think tank. Ali is an economist and public policy expert who has worked in government, academia, and the private sector. He formerly served as the CEO of the Institute for Democracy and Economic Affairs in Malaysia and is the author of the newly published book, Islam and Economics, a Primer on Markets, Morality, and Justice. Welcome, Ali. Thank you so
2: much, Jonathan, for having me on your show.
1: Thank you for being here, and congratulations on the publication of your new book.
2: Thank you so much. It has been a pleasure and a great learning experience for me uh, with all of you at Acton while developing this.
1: Yeah, and this is an important work, and I can't wait to dive into some of its themes with you here. Um, but first, can you tell our audience what the book is about?
2: Um, this book, is, uh, as the title suggests, uh, essentially uh, explains my understanding of uh, the concepts of economic organization uh, of, uh, as as we understand from Islamic history and a reading of uh, Islamic texts, uh, texts, uh, Quran and Hadith, as well as the practices um, of the Prophet. Uh, Muhammad and, and then uh, his companions. So uh, what I've tried to do in this book is not only a conceptual overview of certain principles of uh, economic organization, but also I've gone uh, further down to some operational and institutional tenets of this framework, answering questions such as uh, what should be fiscal policy Uh, what should be uh, price policy or trade policy, um, social welfare policy in such a framework. Uh, So uh, combining, um, uh, I think my insights from economics and Islamic history, I have uh, tried to uh, present this case uh, in a very simple and accessible language, hopefully, especially to an audience uh, in in the West who may not be familiar uh, with the background of uh, economic development and ideas in the
1: Islamic history. It's fascinating how, like you said, you draw from the Quran and the teachings of Muhammad to develop an Islamic framework for business and economic policy. And I want to get into one of the topics that I found most fascinating from the book, and that was the concept of interest. And you write on the the chapter you have on interest, that if there is one topic that has received the most attention by writers about Islamic economics, it is charging interest on loans because this is considered absolutely forbidden in Islam. Um, The Quran uses the word riba for this practice and vehemently prohibits it. Um, And then you quote the Quran. And um, in this translation of the Quran, the word usury is used, but that can also be translated interest Quote, "those that live on usury shall rise up before god like men whom satan has demented by his touch for they claim that trading is no different from usury but god has permitted trading and made usury unlawful he that has received an admonition from his lord and mended his ways may keep his previous gains god will be his judge those that turn back shall be inmates of the fire" wherein they shall abide forever. So this is a very strong condemnation of interest in the Quran. Um, Can you tell us about what challenges this passage has posed for Muslims over the years?
2: Yeah, thank you, um, Nate, for uh, recalling this important part of uh, the discussion. Um, And first of all, if we go back to the early Islamic history, uh, when this uh, uh, challenge of uh, riba came up, uh, it was uh, it is to be noted that um, it it was uh, a social prevalent social practice and particularly loans uh, which were uh, given to the poor people uh, for meeting their consumption uh, needs um, they were not able to service their loans in time and then uh, then they had to pay uh, they were forced to be principal and interest many times over, and that was the practice which Prophet Muhammad um, and also Quran um, termed as a riba, and uh, forbade it. Uh, eventually, it took some years. It was not done, um, you know, in in the beginning, but then uh, in the very in the very last sermon. Prophet declared uh, it's, um, that it will not be applicable anymore. And he announced that um, any interest uh, or RIBA, uh, which was receivable by any member of my family, I forego that. So he set a personal example. Uh, it also suggests that um, the key, the, I think, the feature of, of RIBA, at least that in that society, was extreme exploitation on the basis of a loan given uh, to the people. Now, if we come into the modern history, uh, which I have addressed, and particularly in the evolution of the subject of uh, Islamic economics as Islamic banking, um, you know, I have noted that uh, the, uh, the initial premise of uh, this debate in in the modern era, was uh, this understanding um, that the Western capitalism system, the Western capitalist structure, is essentially based on uh, savings and uh, interest. Banking interest is the most fundamental part of this uh, economic organization. Now, obviously, this is not uh, correct according to what we understand from the evolution of a capitalist structure of society. We know that uh, trade was important, entrepreneurship was important, uh, the evolution of uh, technology was extremely crucial. But it seems that the uh, modern uh, subject of Islamic economics and particularly one of the founders, which I have addressed in, in, in the book, uh, Moulin Lamududi, uh, one of the most influential scholar of last century, uh, uh you know, s- sort of simplified uh, his understanding uh, you know, of, of the economic system with the interest. And that led to that led to actually a contemplation of uh, the entire economic system, of which uh, maybe the banking interest was a small part. And um, uh, over the years, um, we, we saw the emergence of uh, Islamic banking and finance, on the pretext that they can come up with uh, alternatives uh, to, to riba, and that it was called riba free banking. Uh, though interestingly, before the evolution of Islamic banks, uh, there were Muslim banks which were established in India, in Egypt, in, in Turkey um, in late uh, 19th century, 20th century, earlier part. And we saw that, we know that they were charging interest. So I think uh, this definition of what is riba and what was its social context and what is banking interest is is, um, is something you know something which has attracted uh, the most uh, scholarly attention in uh, by the Islamic economists um, and and I don't and I don't think it, it is probably uh, one of their best one of the best uses of their intellect. I, I thought that. You know there were and there are many important topics which the economists must address hmm. um, using Islamic um, history and examples. But um, uh, and, and over uh, bearing attention to this subject has probably uh, narrowed our focus too much.
1: You know the Jewish and Christian traditions have struggled with this question of usury as well. Um, there are Old Testament verses that condemn interest, for example. Uh, there's a verse in Exodus that says, If you lend money to any of my people who are needy among you, do not be like a money lender to him. Do not charge him interest. So even Thomas Aquinas actually argued against the charging of interest. Um, but today, Christians do seem more or less on the same page that interest is permissible, except, of course, if it's used dishonestly or excessively. But this is still. Uh, an issue in the Muslim world today, and there are a number of different responses that Islamic economists have given to the problem. And you mentioned Islamic banks as one interesting response, and some people find the methods of Islamic banks to be moral alternatives to riba, charging interest, and others see it as a different means to the same end as riba, a distinction without a difference. Um, can you explain in more detail what Islamic banking is and what your view of it is?
2: Uh, yes, this is this extremely important. And uh, Islamic banking and finance has have become quite popular, uh, not in the Islamic world but also in in other many other countries uh, who have uh, accepted this as part of the mainstream banking. Now, the basic premise of the evolution of Islamic banks, as they call uh, it, was uh, indeed uh, riba free banking. And the idea that in an Islamic system, uh, we should encourage trade. Um, and in trade, you know, there, there, are, there are risks. Uh, so you can have profit and you can have loss in the trade. So, for instance, one manifestation of this um, distinction between RIBA and FEB was that um, uh, the, the banks should actually open a profit and loss sharing accounts rather than interest-bearing current accounts, right? So uh, this was experimented in, in Pakistan in late uh, 70s and early 80s. But in in if you go in, uh, uh, in, in the practice, um, you, know, you realize that as depositors, um, if I'm having an account in a Uh, profit-loss-sharing count, I hardly incur a loss. There may be a variation in how much earning I am making uh, based on the indicated profits, uh, but then there is still some profit at the end of the year. Uh, But the name was changed uh, from interest to profit and loss, uh, following the spirit uh, that Islam encourages trade and discourages riba um and uh the, there were other instruments like uh, which were adopted uh, for instance there was a diff- the the leasing uh, house house uh, leasing car leasing uh, which is still practiced in the islamic banks um were incorporated uh, with, with some differences i think uh, for instance uh, in the islamic banks when you are taking uh, House loan, uh, you can still do it, uh, but then uh, the the difference is that over the years, over the tenure, you're actually transferring the ownership of the the asset uh, gradually from the bank to you. Hmm. And you're paying what they call a rent. So in the contract, it is mentioned you're paying a rent and in the rent, you are gradually shifting the ownership like a shares of house. It's so, over 10 years. Now, if you look at the um, uh, basics of it, um, then you realize that uh, the fundamental point about uh, you know, the difference uh, in price, if an asset is bought in cash versus if an asset is bought in credit is still there. Islamic banks still acknowledge that the money, uh, there is a time value of money. And so they have incorporated it in, in some ways in their transactions, in their contracts. Of course, they're not calling it um, RIBA or interest. Uh, the RIBA is hardly used uh, because everyone understands it. it's hard, So no one would use it uh, as far as the term is concerned. But uh, maybe the type of transaction is still there. There are, although there are some differences which are important, I think these are uh, not um, insignificant. For instance, when it comes to uh, borrowing, um, uh, there is uh, explicit understanding that uh, the underlying securities uh, have to be uh, physical assets. Uh, so Islamic bonds, uh, sukuk bonds as they call it, uh, are, can only be issued against physical asset and not against monetary uh, or non-physical asset. Uh, so Pakistani government, when it issues uh, sukuk, it pledges um, any physical infrastructure which the country has developed. And um, following this spirit. so there are these differences, but I'm saying that uh, the key difference uh, and the key recognition that, you know, why we need interest um, is uh, the risk factors, time value of money is still recognized in the Islamic banks.
1: This is such an important question because there are almost 2 billion Muslims in the world whose daily lives will be affected depending on their view of riba of interest. And for us non-Muslims, we can maybe take for granted some of the moral considerations a Muslim has to take into account. For example, as you mentioned, do you buy a house if you have to take out a mortgage on the house because mortgages incur interest? Um, Do you Use a credit card because credit cards can incur interest. Do you open a savings account because savings accounts can earn interest? So it's interesting hearing from you about some of the ways Islamic banks have tried to come back against those problems and find ways to be profitable without charging interest. So I'm curious, do you think that those methods used by the Islamic banks are – just dancing around the issue that these are um, really just means to the same end, or is there really a significant moral difference from charging interest versus using some of the methods that you described?
2: Uh, In in essence, I believe that, uh, you know, the the Islamic banks are still charging interest. And um, since they're part of the economy, uh, They cannot avoid the the fact that people uh, can enter into contract of different nature. Some people have cash available, and then they can do transactions on the basis of cash. But not everyone would be able to buy a car or or a house, but they still need it. So they have come up uh, with with the alternate solutions. Um, And um, uh, for instance, um, in in Pakistan, one of the Islamic banks offers... uh, Car on uh, on on leasing. This is called ijara in Islamic finance terms. But they offer also, for instance, an, an additional insurance. Now, this is an incentive uh, for customers to buy, but this does not necessarily mean that uh, they have been able to avoid uh, the the element of of interest which you incur uh, when you are paying uh, money uh, over over some years versus whatever the present value of the asset. So um, to to a large extent, uh, I I believe that uh, Islamic banks have have, uh, created uh, a market for for Muslims uh, who are more conscious about, uh, you know, whether it is, uh, whether the commercial transactions are based on Libya or not. Uh, So they have attracted maybe those individuals and, and firms um, which were reluctant to be a part of the financial system uh, because um, that, that was contrary to their belief. So it is their success, uh, but it doesn't mean that they have uh, come up with a totally innovative financial model um, where they have devised a profitable model of uh, financing without uh, incurring interest in real times. I hope I answer your question.
1: So it sounds like you think these innovative methods are a useful way for um, spiritually conscious Muslims to purchase a home, um, invest their money, etc., without infringing on, on riba, but that there is still a lot of similarity between these methods and the traditional ways of charging interests and that there's not a big distinction in your view. Is that correct?
2: Yes. I think that will be a fair summary of my viewpoint. Okay. Uh, that um, while there have been serious scholarships uh, and uh, very sincere uh, Islamic scholars have devoted their lifetime and, uh, uh, in studying this phenomenon, coming up with this alternative. And in in, in spirit that I would also imagine that, that like if, let's say, I need a loan and if there is a company uh, which can give me a loan on the basis of profit and loss sharing, I'd be very happy as, let's say, a borrower or as an entrepreneur, right? So this was the spirit uh, that uh, we will come up with, uh, Mechanisms of giving you money if you want to do business, and we will become a partner in your profit if you are profitable. But if you incur loss, then um, you know that is understandable as a loss, and uh, we will become a partner in your loss. So, so the concept of Udarbha. So, I'll be very happy as an entrepreneur, as a borrower if such institutions really exist. Mm. But uh, unfortunately, that is not the case. That is the spirit, but that is not the case. Mm. Islamic banks, if you go ask alone, uh, they would also ask for similar terms, uh, let's say, collateral or other uh, securities as conventional banks would do, uh, because uh, they are also responsible or answerable to the shareholders and and central banks. So, uh, what I'm trying to see, say is that there is a need of such an institution in, uh, you know, in, in that spirit. That was the, the whole spirit of and of, uh, loss. But um, the Islamic banks uh, not, have not yet discovered a model mm. where they can provide uh, these uh, authentic alternatives
1: I see. So there's a difference between theory and practice.
2: That's right. Yeah.
1: Their intentions are good and correct and moral, but they haven't yet figured out exactly how to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish.
2: That, that's, 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 that's right. And one more thing is like, although the, the, the distinction uh, between Reba uh, and trading, uh, as you also quoted verse uh, from Quran, is well established, so so clearly we should distinguish the, the both both transactions. But there is also a distinction between uh, you know uh, a relationship between uh, riba and, and sadhaka. That is the charitable giving. Now, a charitable giving is is meant to be reserved for those people who need loan on a compassionate grounds. They are not business people. They are not looking for loan for when starting a new business but they need a loan to, uh, to, for their family needs, uh, you know, so buying uh, something which they need for, for daily use. So for such people, I believe that there should be mechanisms for interest-free loans. Um, and there are in- new institutions now emerging. For instance, there's a large microfinance bank in Pakistan, a microfinance institution uh, called FUBAN, which translates as a brotherhood. Which has come up with the idea of interest-free lending. And they are interest-free. So they do not charge any interest when while they are giving loans to uh, small entrepreneurs. But they have to service the cost of financial operations. So since uh, uh, you know, and, and, and their model is that uh, we can actually uh, recover the costs of lending uh, uh, and, and financial operations. Uh, from donations. So so let's say they will collect $110 uh, and they will keep $10 to meet their expenditures and they will give out $100 and they will receive back $100. Mm -hmm. So that is an interest-free model if you like. This this was inspired by the same idea of a RIBA-free banking, but obviously you you still have to service the, the, the costs. I think that's a that's a good model, a socially responsible model, um, as compared with the frankly conventional microfinance banks, mm-hmm. which are actually these microfinance banks charge much higher rate of interest than even the conventional uh, mainstream banks mm. because of the nature of uh, the work. So I'm saying that there have been attempts and sincere attempts um, by both scholars and practitioners of Islamic finance, but, um, you know, to be where we are in terms of evolution of a really innovative model is still an open question.
1: I heard that in ancient times, the purpose of loans was seen mainly as a way to help the poor and was used less for business purposes. So interest was sometimes seen as an exploitation of the people the loans were supposed to help. Um, So when the Bible was written, when the Quran was written, it was even the case before bankruptcy laws that people would end up in slavery if they were unable to pay back their debts. So this idea of interest-free loans seems like the simplest and most direct way to address this concern that was underlying the prohibition of interest at the time.
2: Yes, that's right. In fact, um, as we know um, uh, from Islamic history also, there was a rich tradition of um, venture-financed uh, trade caravans. Uh, people used to participate. It's like you know, through shares, and, uh, and they were taking on, they will invest in trade caravans. They will take on the risks. And, uh, but it was not a, a you know, loan transaction. It was more of a participation in the business uh, with the hope of earning profit without actually participating in the business action directly.
1: I see. So how would you summarize your view of RIBA from your book and the um, perspective that you offer?
2: So I would say that um, uh, this spirit of um, for, forbidding of RIBA uh, is essentially based on the, the fact that loans were used um, uh, to exploit those uh, who needed it for their uh, c- consumption purposes. And that is, that is a society, that is something which society should be able to uh, offer through alternative means without resorting to lending. Whereas the um, modern practice of banking interest, uh, while it, uh, it has some features, of uh, charging of interest, it is not uh, exploitative in the in the same sense uh, riba was considered exploitative. So I maintain a distinction between uh, what is mentioned as riba in Quran and banking interest. Um, but I also believe that um, these practices can also vary from country to country, from society to society, and. Um, um, The the key element is that um, uh, if if loan is needed, then we should be able to provide it uh, without exploitation.
1: So how would you advise Muslims today who want to purchase a home and are faced with the dilemma of whether or not to take out a mortgage?
2: I'm of the view that uh, there is no harm in uh, in buying the house on mortgage, even with the uh, conventional banking system, the housing finance system. Uh, housing, house ownership uh, is, is a requirement. Um, and therefore, if we do not have uh, sufficient cash to buy, I think these assets uh, can be acquired. Uh, and uh, Muslims uh, should feel that this is consistent with their belief uh, rather than the concrete way.
1: And if, let's say, another Muslim challenges them on, you know, why are you taking out this mortgage, incurring interest? What's the quick answer they can give to why that type of interest is different from the interest talked about in the Quran?
2: Uh, Essentially, the interest which is mentioned in the Quran is based on the social practice of uh, exploitation and charging the interest many times over which we do not see in in modern and contemporary financial infrastructure, in which we can get a house on mortgage and then uh, pay a a very nominal amount on interest. Um, And therefore I do not consider this as exploitative practice um, and and consider it acceptable.
1: Very interesting. Um, So I wanna turn now to a second topic that I found fascinating from your book and and to be very important, and that's the chapter on taxation. Um, I was fascinated how you built an Islamic argument for a limited government on your view of taxation. Um, Now, most non-Muslims have some familiarity with the five pillars of Islam, which are the central practices of the Muslim faith. um, And those are the profession of faith, um, prayer five times a day, giving alms, fasting during Ramadan, and taking a pilgrimage to Mecca. And now the third one, almsgiving, and the Arabic word for that is zakat, um, is sometimes thought of narrowly as a purely religious obligation to give money to the poor. Um, but you have a Um, broader view of Zakat. Can you explain to our audience what Zakat means?
2: Yes, um, I think um, essentially Zakat, um, I consider in in a nutshell, it's a tax on those who can afford to pay. So it's not a charitable giving um, in a a volunteer sense. Uh, For those who can afford according to the threshold which is defined in Islamic law uh, they have to pay uh, a certain percentage uh, on their assets. Um, and that has, uh, well, I can actually define as 2.5% um, on uh, of their assets. But this discussion, this definition has expanded, and um, it is understood that uh, it also major, it also varies from sources of earning. For instance, uh, uh, the, the same, uh, tax or Zakat uh, would be 10% uh, if you are in agriculture business. And it will be 20% if the source of revenue is based on uh, natural resources. Uh, So there are various rates um, of of Zakat tax. Now, there are a couple of important uh, points here. First of all, as I mentioned, uh, this is only applicable on those people who can afford to pay and who have um, a wealth uh, beyond a threshold limit, uh, which is computed on a yearly basis.
1: And that threshold is uh, equivalent to around $4,000 uh, in, in U.S. currency today. Is that correct?
2: That's right. That's about uh, $4,000. It was based on originally uh, the uh, specific quantity of silver and gold, uh, but, but in the monetary sense, that's right. Now, uh, so first of all, there's a threshold. Secondly, uh, uh, the the concept of uh, charity is something which people can give on their own. It is still there, but when we talk about zakat, it is um, uh, compulsory giving. Now, um, an important part of Islamic history, in early Islamic history, uh, when these five pillars were being uh, Socialized in in the practice of Muslim society, in the, during the reign of the first Caliph uh, Abu Bakr, um, some tribes actually announced uh, that they will not be paying zakat. The now there was a huge discussion on uh, and, and on that point and and whether the government at that time should be used should should they, should the government be using force. Uh, to deduct, uh, to take Zakat or not. And then it was ultimately decided that the government will actually wage a war on those tribes uh, to collect Zakat by, by force. Those were Muslim tribes, but who refused to pay Zakat at that time. So eventually it was acknowledged that um, Zakat is, uh, is a tax, which is a low rate tax, as you mentioned in different rates. Um, but then it's a part of an obligatory hearing. Now, if you see that, um, uh, the way I relate it with um, the size of the government is this that if various sources of zakat are combined together, um, there is an upper limit of how much zakat can be collected. That also means that the uh, government uh, cannot um, you know, earn revenue from any other source. Uh, other than is another source I mentioned it was a land tax, and particularly if the land is not being cultivated uh, and developed for any purposes, that can be taken back. Yeah.
1: So, what is the reason for zakat, which is a an annual wealth tax and land use tax? What is the reason for those being the only two? permissible taxes on Islam, in your view?
2: I think the main uh, wisdom behind, uh, being, behind these two as the only taxes uh, is that uh, probably it was uh, God's intent to, to keep the size of the government limited. And uh, and that was uh, how it was also, uh, in, in a way, encouraged uh, socially, you know, voluntary giving by society, The institution of BAKF was created uh, so that people would be able to help uh, people themselves without resorting to the government. I think the main spirit behind uh, the structure was uh, to keep uh, the the size of government limited, but also one important thing that if we believe that this is coming, this is part of an Islamic uh, belief, then uh, unlike taxes, which we legislate through parliament, then in the future, uh, Parliament would not be able to legislate new taxes because that's the limit this God has determined. So, um, if there is something, for instance, uh, you know, Islamic prayers, okay, how many days in in the uh, holy month of Ramadan? Uh, Twenty-nine days or thirty days? So it's fixed, cannot be changed. Uh, similar things have been fixed in terms of part of the. Um, Islamic faith. So, if zakat is included in, is a part of similar faith structure, then I think it automatically puts a limit on what can be legislated and what cannot be legislated by a parliament. Um, and, and I think that's that's a sort of a divine scheme to uh, to limit uh, the revenue which the state can uh, incur.
1: Certainly, we think of. So there's so many different types of taxes that are used around the world income taxes, sales taxes but um, limiting it to just a land use tax and a wealth tax would seem to limit the revenue of a government, of course, depending on how large those rates are. But Zakat, as you describe, um, has a maximum rate of 20%, but is usually only 2.5 percent. Um, can you explain the differences between who gets taxed 2.5 percent versus 20 percent?
2: So, the 2.5 percent is normally applicable on individuals, and uh, uh, then I mentioned the other rates in, in the book, for instance, uh, uh the 10 percent is applicable on agricultural produce. Uh, similar rates are applicable on industrial produce and then treated in the same way. And then the twenty percent uh, rate is applicable if you are, uh, let's say, owning a mine or you know doing something to uh, a visible next especially resources. Uh, then the higher rate would apply, implying that there is limited amount of rent uh, compared to, let's say. The agriculture produces less of human effort involved in uh, the natural resources, although uh, it it will require investment. But then uh, that is how the rates are defined based on uh, the nature of income and uh, also uh, resources.
1: So for most people, what they would pay is uh, for any assets they own over $4,000 approximately in the United States. They would pay at 2.5 percent of their assets per year. That's right. Plus a land use tax, and your argument is that um, these two types of taxes—the wealth tax and the land use tax—are the only two types of taxes um, with with precedent um, in the early days of Islam. Is that correct?
2: Uh, this is, this my understanding. But let me also add something, uh, which I think we uh, would be will be of interest. That uh, in this uh, in the early Islamic history, uh, the uh, governments uh, also waged wars, and uh, you know they they collected uh, also uh, wealth by taxing their subjects. So that was an additional source of revenue coming uh, to the to the government at that time. Uh, Although there was a distinction, for instance, uh, the lands which were in the use of uh, subjects, particularly non Muslim subjects, was then allowed to be, uh, you know, allowed in terms of the ownership. The ownership was continued uh, uh, against the tax bond, which is here. So there was another source of taxation where the non Muslim subjects were included in the Islamic uh, government or caliphate, as, as we call it historically. So there were other sources of income. And also, uh, interestingly, the, um, this, uh, and also like the, the role of tariffs. Now, um, historically, when um, in Medina, in, in when the Prophet Muhammad established uh, the first Muslim community, the uh, tariff rate was kept at 0%. Uh, and he announced that there will be no tariff in my market So anyone is welcome to bring uh, the goods and trade, the tariff would not be charged. And even in his time, in the other markets of the same city, we know roughly about uh, 10% of tariff was being charged. So it's like an import tax. But in in the market of Muslims, there was 0% tariff. The idea was to encourage the flow of trade. Not to discourage it by tariffs. But uh, we know that later on, uh, sub- successive Muslim governments did introduce tariffs um, uh, in, in various uh, percentages. So it was practice. But since my work is essentially based on uh, the early classical uh, practices um, within Islamic history, I've made this distinction in, in the book there. The uh, ideally speaking, for our government to earn revenue, uh, their sources should be limited to zakat applicable different rates, plus a land use tax, which can be used for infrastructure.
1: So, why should governments, Islamic governments, today use this type of tax system? And will it work in practice? We know that most governments are reliant upon probably a lot more funding than they would be able to acquire through the type of system that you've proposed. Um, so what? how would this work in practice?
2: So some countries have actually uh, done estimation. Uh, I would not say that they have implemented it. For instance, uh, Malaysia, uh, there was a study done that if uh, Zakat is uh, today collected in um, in the same way, in how it is prescribed, then it will generate a considerable revenue. And I estimated that it, this was about seventy percent of general sales tax collected at, time at that time. So it was not an insignificant amount. And if you add other taxes like, like as I a land land use tax, then I think it can. Uh, further boost the government revenue. Uh, the rates itself, the rates on the car, which I've mentioned, are not mentioned in in Quran. So there is a degree of interpretation there based on what historical evidences we we have received. Uh, but we know that uh, this is mentioned as part of the uh, Islamic belief. So I think the modern governments uh, can look into. Uh, uh not in strictly the same sense it was uh, in which we understand today, but in, or also can interpret it in, uh, as a modern taxation. And take the spirit, the spirit is keep it low, keep it flat, do not uh, make it too complicated, um, and then um, and then you know, use land taxes uh, to develop infrastructure, so, if we follow that spirit, then I think we can come up with the um, uh, with the more sort of practical solution to it. But if we, of course, um, if we if we follow the literal um, traditional framework, then we, we might be limited. Uh, for instance, uh, Quran mentions uh, like uh, certain uh, areas on which zakat can be spent. Now. If we follow the conventional understanding, then there will be problems. Uh, But then scholars have done interpretation of it. Uh, For instance, uh, leading Islamic scholar, uh, who is now based in the US has has, uh, has written about it. And he has argued that uh, uh, this clause in Quran about uh, where zakat can be spent includes those people who collect tax Means entire government. So, conventional understanding is that, oh, zakat can only be spent by that particular department, like a zakat collecting department. But then the other interpretation is, well, uh, the entire government is responsible for it. So, in a way, the whole government uh, can be uh, applicable. Now, this may seem, this may uh, sound very, very unrealistic. I think uh, some empirical work is needed there, uh, combining with um, uh, the modern interpretations of SACA, uh, uh, which may lead to new insights about how the fiscal requirements of the government, uh, a limited government, I would say, can be met. Obviously, if you um, if you expand the limits of the government, then that will be impossible. But the whole idea of uh, using this framework is to introduce a divine limit, if you allow me to say that, on the size of the government.
1: I'm fascinated by this tax proposal that you've laid out in your book, and I'd love to see some countries test it out in practice. And your book is full of interesting ideas like this, so I'd really encourage our audience to check it out. But I just have one last question for you, and that's, what impact do you hope this book will have?
2: Well, I hope that uh, uh, the, the the readers will find it um, insightful in terms of uh, expanding their understanding of economic vision of Islam, and I hope that the, the readers will find that uh, it's not about just Islamic banking and finance. Towards the contemporary Islamic economics discussion has uh, focus. It's much deeper and it's much larger. So if, by reading the book, you realize that um, the understanding and practice of um, Islamic principles uh, does yield a comprehensive and practical economic system uh, which, uh, with details which can be elaborated, then I think this, will, uh, this, will, this, will, this book will be successful.
1: Ali, uh, thank you so much. I always learn so much speaking with you, and um, I really enjoyed your book. I encourage our audience to find your book, Islam and Economics, on Acton.org's bookshop or by searching for it on Amazon. Thanks for joining us today, Ali.
2: Thank you so much, Anthony. It was a pleasure talking to you again, and it also helped me in organizing my thoughts.
0: As always... Thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at actonline at acton.org. Until next week for Actonline, I'm Gabriel Jaja.